Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 720. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. So what a show we have today, I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in. First up is the main fiction called Nice For What by Dominica Fetplace. And we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. Fantastic, let's jump straight into it then. Like I say, the main fiction, Nice For What by Dominica Fetplace. Dominica writes fiction and poetry. Her work has appeared in Ectone, Copper Nickel, Punk, The Los Angeles Review and a whole host of other things. And the US Best Science Fiction and Fantasy. Her honours include two Pushcart Prizes, a Rona Jaff Award and a Steinbach Fellowship. This story first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the July 2019 edition. This story is narrated by Mary Murphy. Mary is a New York-style actor, voiceover artist. She loves the world of audio drama and is delighted to be back on Starship Sofa. She's performed for theatre, film, TV, animation, radio, video, you name it, video games. A few of her recent credits include the one-woman play, An Evening with Lola Muntz, It's a Wonderful Life, a stream performance of a piece near Nellie Blythe, by Divination of the Three, but for Asheville Fringe and the audio dramas Frontier Gentlemen. Oh, I like that name. I like that name. Chinook and Newfield. She can be heard voicing various characters for Disney, Go Kid Go, Leapfrog, the Centre for New American Media, Audible as well. She has also been a regular performer on the audio drama series Fireside Mystery Theatre, the No Sleep Podcast, The Wicked Library, To The Manor Born by Robots and Campfire Radio Theatre. And there's a link to Mary Murphy online as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Nice For What by Dominica Fetplace. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. After Luliana was released from prison, she decided to pursue her dream career professional influencing. Her partnership with Taktian was her most important deal yet. They weren't paying her in money. They were paying her in life-saving medicine that she couldn't otherwise afford. In exchange, she was supposed to help them with their image problems. But two weeks after the campaign started, the biomedical firm remained as unpopular as ever. It didn't help that Luliana only seemed to be getting sicker. Everything she said during her publicity interviews was put through a paparazzified machine analysis— where some know-nothing neural net used her tone, her pauses, and her word choice to guess at her physical and mental state. There was no evidence that these algorithms were real, much less accurate. But this type of pseudoscience generated clicks. She suspected most of these tabloid categorization scripts were actually mechanical Turks— ones that pretended to do math but reached foregone conclusions designed to stoke traffic. Her last television appearance had been on Wendy in the morning. She was trying to explain how Taktian wasn't just going to cure her cancer. They were going to help her live her best life. Their clinics are so chic. You can even get med spa treatments while they run tests. I got Botox last time. Luliana smiled with her mouth only. She would get a bonus if a certain number of patients signed up for med spa treatments in the next six hours. "'You're hardly old enough for Botox,' replied Wendy. "'I'm hardly old enough for cancer, yet here I am.' Luliana then laughed a little too loudly and pushed her smile a little wider as the muscles around her eyes stayed frozen in place. Ronnie had done her makeup so of course she looked beautiful, but she couldn't credit her look to him. That would violate the terms of the deal she had signed. She thanked Glossismo for the products, and pretended she had done it all herself. She was contractually obligated to say Glossismo at least three times, but each time she fumbled it, either giving it too much Glossisicismo or not enough Glossmo. They were probably going to deduct a penalty from her fee— which had already shrunk since her last interview. With perfect posture, she wore her pink lace self-portrait dress as if she liked it, as if she had picked it out herself. When really it had arrived in the mail, after her agent had negotiated her payment. The dress was lovely except for the color. It should have been black, to match how she felt on the inside. Takchin had told her to expect minimal side effects. She asked them if she would lose her hair, and they said she wouldn't. When it started to fall out anyway, they blamed it on stress. At least her hair loss had provided another endorsement opportunity. She wore high-end wigs, her scalp a new billboard. She wanted dark hair, but her agent told her she would be paid more for lavender. She thought the effect was too Easter Bunny, and was pleasantly surprised when the notoriously bitchy fashion-scoring algorithms rated her highly. She didn't scowl once through her interview with Wendy, and yet the tabloids still called her out. Insincere. Unwell. 
This may have been accurate, but that didn't mean it was fair. Luliana had hoped her illness, assuming she survived it, might be another growth opportunity for her brand. She was twenty-five years old with late-stage sarcoma. The plan was to court sympathy while adding followers. She had probably overdone it on the Botox, though it wasn't as if she wanted it in the first place. These mandatory med spa treatments were a condition of her sponsorship. Tachin wanted her looking fresh. Now the more she smiled, the more followers she lost. Time to cancel the rest of the interviews, at least until the neurotoxin wore off. Tachin's low favorables among the public were toxic. Their treatments were insanely expensive, accessible to only the one-tenth percent. As a branding strategy, they doubled down on luxury. They opened their clinics in high-end malls and styled them with glass and marble interiors. Protesters held die-ins in front of their med boutiques as staffers inside served free slices of cake to the patients. Liliana had been contractually obligated to post a selfie of her eating a slice of pink cake with glitter frosting while a nurse injected her with medication. Such images were bad for her brand, but what was she supposed to do? Die? Luliana's disease normally had a 5% survival rate, but Tachian had peer-reviewed research showing its treatment did quite well against such cancers. They had sequenced Luliana's various genomes and the genomes of her tumors. Then doctors used high-powered simulations to model immunotherapy options before finding the likeliest one to work. The treatment wasn't expensive because they gave you free cake. It was expensive because it required at least 500 PhD hours and 5,000 simulation hours for each patient. Most of their profit was located in their med spa offerings. The margin on Botox was much better than the margin on curing cancer. They sold designer handbags in their waiting rooms. This was the only way they could stay in business— they didn't care if it upset the middle class. A certain kind of bad press endeared them to their target clientele. The more publicity she did for Tactian, the worse the tabloids treated Luliana. The headlines echoed the conclusions of the algorithms that analyzed her public appearances. Few humans posted in the comment threads anymore. But everybody seemed interested in what the bots had to say. The hater bots always argued with the fan bots, but lately the haters had been winning more likes. Television is over. You can host your own video, said Ronnie as he helped her organize her medications. What's the point? I'm dying. Honey, we're all dying. The point is to slow it down enough so you can have a little fun before you go. I'm not having a little fun. I'm not having any fun at all. First we slow down death. Then we'll take a vacation. It wasn't just the TV appearances and subsequent analyses that were wearing her down. It was the expression and gait analyses done by paparazzi drones. It was a sentiment analyses applied to the text of her social media posts. It was a biometric analysis performed on the saliva she left on restaurant utensils. She couldn't stop going out. She had promised her sponsors visibility. So she brought her own utensils with her. Her own cups and plates. She got a picnic company to endorse her. Ronnie very kindly washed all the dishes when they got home because the act of going out exhausted her too much to do anything else. Hired originally to be her live-in makeup artist, he was doing more and more. If Tactian was to be believed, she would be in remission very soon. All she had to do was be her cheerful, stylish self. If the tabloid algorithms were to be believed, she was only getting sicker. She certainly felt worse each day, but she couldn't tell if it was the stress or the cancer. Nobody but Ronnie and her diehard fans seemed to care about her stress, 
but there were factions of the public now openly rooting for her cancer. We're not hitting our handbag targets, said the Tactian spokeswoman on a conference call. Patient outcomes will suffer if we have to close clinics. It was a pointed reminder that lives were at stake, not just Luliana's own. Past cancer treatments had bound profitability via high volume. They hadn't worked very well, but at least they had made money. Personalization precluded volume, and Tactian needed to make up the loss elsewhere. If they couldn't sell enough handbags, then they couldn't stay in business. If they closed, their patients might die. You need to figure out a way to have a productive television interview, said the spokeswoman. It would be easier to do publicity if I didn't feel so awful all the time. Aren't I supposed to be feeling better? There was silence on the call. Her immune system was also underperforming. It was as if she couldn't do anything right. Our data show that patients with a positive attitude respond better to our treatments. What the fuck? How dare you? Luliana was shouting. Ronnie pressed mute, and Luliana's agent took over the negotiation. A round of stern text messages came from her agent's assistant. Be professional. And this was good advice. Her survival depended on it. If Tactium pulled out, she needed to get another biomedical company lined up, even one that wasn't as good. Lacking money... Sponsorships were the only way she could have access to the best care. After the call, she lay in her bed crying. Wig off, face gaunt and mascara tears in full bloom. She had no illusions about how attractive she was. Still, Ronnie came to her and said, What can we do to make you feel better? This only made her cry harder. This was all the fault of those horrible algorithms. Earlier that day, before Wendy, they had gone on a sponsored outing, shopping at an outdoor mall. She and Ronnie were intentionally photographed on the VIP patio of a California pizza kitchen. It was separate from the main patio and cordoned off via a velvet rope. They were eating the newly launched calzones and continuously remarking to one another how delicious they were, creating footage for an Instagram story. Nothing useful could be gleaned from this play-acting, but still the algorithms claimed to know something. Supposedly, the paparazzi had stationed pheromone sensors outside the patio. Using chemical analysis, the tabloids had deduced that Luliana was in love with Ronnie, and that Ronnie was gay. This was not real science. Nothing about the atmospheric pheromone sensors and the subsequent analysis would stand up to a real scientific review. But despite the fact that the evidence was falsified, the conclusion just happened to be true. Her hopeless crush on him wasn't new information. Not to them. The unspoken pact was that she would ignore her feelings, and he would pretend not to notice. The push notifications from the gossip sites ensured they could no longer do this. She had hired Ronnie because of his portfolio, and also because he had been in prison once, just like her. It was so hard for ex-cons. Nobody would hire them, so they had to look out for each other. Despite the brand she cultivated for herself, which mostly involved endorsing luxury goods, she wasn't rich. She had used up her savings. She had no health insurance. She couldn't reliably afford groceries, so she depended on comped meals. She was paid heavily in goods, less so in dollars. Rent and taxes took almost everything. Still, it had been a nice life full of wonderful things until she had gotten sick. She had loved her job, once... She couldn't really afford to pay Ronnie much, so she became one of the people she always hated, the kind that promised exposure. Proximity to her was supposed to help him as he built his own brand. It sucked that her contract with Glossismo stipulated she had to pretend to do her own makeup, 
but she always figured she could get a better beauty deal once she hit a million organic followers, maybe even start her own line. She did pay Ronnie in money, though, and she let him sleep on her couch rent-free. She just wasn't paying him what he was worth, and that was because no one was paying her what she was worth. She might never hit a million followers, and now he was losing followers, too. It felt horrible. Beyond the crush, she really did love him, and he really did love her. It did no justice to call them just friends, as if their friendship was a sort of consolation prize, and not the thing that got her out of bed on her worst mornings. When Ronnie came to her that night, she knew what he was really offering. She knew he would sleep with her, if that's what she wanted, if that's what it took to save her life. She knew he would pretend for her, but she didn't think that her situation would be improved by adding yet another layer of artifice to it. So she pushed him away. In the morning, he apologized for making her uncomfortable, while she tried to summon the energy to make a breakfast for them out of a get-well gift basket sent by a sponsor. No, no, let me. He sliced the pears thinly and assembled a plate out of the included meats and cheeses. Charcuterie for breakfast wasn't her first choice, but she needed to eat something and really didn't feel like going out or logging on. She knew the press was making fun of her and Ronnie on the Internet. Sure enough, Taktian cancelled her deal. She only had two days of medication left. It wasn't working anyway. We'll find you a new sponsor. Everything is ruined. Everybody's laughing at us. Nonsense. Let's give you a new look. You don't have to do that for me. You don't have to do anything for me. Luliana had learned some queer theory while in prison. She realized that popular culture had taught straight women to expect the adoration and friendship of gay men without offering anything in return. She didn't want to be like this. Yet here she was, a drain on his existence. She was estranged from her family. She had lots of followers, but no actual friends besides him. The fakery of being an influencer was hard on your relationships. So was prison. Her life of crime had begun with shoplifting. She'd always loved designer clothes, but her appetite exceeded her budget. This was a point of fashion, to have what so many others couldn't. And maybe if you could have what others wanted, you could be wanted yourself. Once she realized her skill, she found her way into all sorts of other financial misdeeds. Things that were complicated, things that were never pinned to her, things that were wrong, things she regretted. She kept telling herself that she would stop, but the only thing that had truly stopped her was getting caught. In the end, she might have gotten away with it, all of it, if it weren't for those meddling algorithms and her love of social media. She was stylish and good at selfies. She posted pics of her outfits and had started to build a small following as a fashion blogger. This was the beginning of her career as an influencer. She got caught when the high-end boutiques who noticed the inventory shrinkage sent out the image-sniffing digital hounds on the trail of their missing items. Photo recognition paired with a database that compiled missing items from dozens of retailers had implicated her. After her arrest, the case became a tabloid sensation. The scale of the theft created the type of puritanical outrage among internet-browsing middle-class Americans that drove clicks. It helped that she was pretty, and that the selfies she posted tended towards thirst. She was sentenced to two years. An outrageous amount of time for the things she was accused of, not so bad for the things she got away with. She didn't have much internet access in prison, but once out, she was determined to remake her image. Even after paying huge legal fees, she still had a modest fortune left from her undiscovered crimes. 
She invested it in her brand, buying and photographing herself in nice places wearing nice clothes, until her follower count rose high enough. Then the trips and clothes became complimentary. Then she started to charge brands for the privilege of taking her places and giving her things. It was like all the fun of prostitution with none of the hard work. Her look was girlish luxury, pastels and perfect makeup, a self-made socialite with a polished femininity designed to distract from her sordid past. Not really a true expression of her inner self, but it had worked for a while, just like any other con, until it didn't. The best liars knew when to stop. She might have realized her style was fitting badly sooner, if it weren't for the cancer. That took up a lot of her attention. Too much. It was time to get her edge back. You gave me a chance when no one else would, said Ronnie. Let me help you. So Luliana agreed to a makeover. Afterwards, she did look better. Maybe the comment bots would stop making fun of her appearance. Her face in the mirror was still gaunt. She still looked forty-five instead of twenty-five. But she decided to look at her reflection head-on. She reminded herself that she was ruthless. In the context of trying to make money, it was a bad quality to have. In the context of trying to save your own life, it was a good one. Ronnie had given her the vampy look she had wanted for a long time now. Ever since her first diagnosis, liquid liner and huge eyelashes, a beauty mark. Let me be your boyfriend, just for pretend. Ride on the back of my motorcycle. Only if you get me a black wig. She wasn't all the way serious, and neither was he. A fake romance would only make her feel worse in the long term. In their kidding, Luliana and Ronnie had found the seeds of a new plan. They had a long call with her agent. There would be no fake relationship, but there would be a motorcycle for him and a black wig for her. She worked a sponsorship deal with the biomedical firm Heal Hard. It was a low-end firm that employed less advanced modeling technologies. They didn't incorporate as many biometric markers into their treatments, and they didn't boost the high survival rates of Tactian. But they offered you a free tattoo if you went into remission, and two free tattoos if you didn't. With Ronnie's help, she kept up her posting on social media all through her new treatment. Instead of playing the cheerful cancer warrior, she decided to be honest about the toll her sickness was taking on her. Every single luxury brand ceased their sponsorship of her. She relied, for the first time, on fan donations. She came out about being poor. This confession made her feel so much better, as did her new sponsor's steadiness. Heel Hard stayed loyal to her, and never threatened to end treatment before it was done. She had insisted on equity as a condition of her new deal. Heel Hard had been reluctant, but she posed it as a life-or-death matter. No way would she have the will to survive if all she had to look forward to was a life full of economic precarity. She could only get better if she knew she could be rich again. They seemed to understand this. So the plan was to make it, and then retire from being a celebrity. It had been fun at first, but now it was kind of a prison that was worse than actual prison. Everybody should be famous for fifteen minutes, but no longer. She would stop influencing and help Ronnie find his own version of temporary fulfillment via fame. And then when he was done, they would take some of their winnings and start a charity— Medicine for sick girls and college scholarships for the formerly incarcerated. And with the rest, they would live a very fabulous and only occasionally public life. That was the plan. They would still post, just not that often. But they were never going to delete their accounts. And they were never, ever going to stop posting. Why? Because fuck the haters. That's why. And there you go. Huge thank you to Dominica. Dominica, that was lovely. Absolutely lovely. Thank you so much. 
And Mary, what can I say? It's lovely to have you back on Starship Sofa. Fantastic. Next is our very own, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back on genre history. When I last spoke with you on episode 718, 718, I was talking about the excellent anthology AI Narratives, A History of Imaginative Thinking About Intelligent Machines, from Oxford University Press, 2020, edited by Stephen Cave, Kanta Dihal, and Sarah Dillon. And I talked about the first half of that book, which considered AI narratives from antiquity to the 20th century, sort of ending with Carl Chopek's R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots in 1921. I'm interested in this topic because the stories we tell matter. In the case of artificial intelligence, the stories we consume, the stories we tell about AI matter because they influence who is involved, who is drawn to become part of the innovation with AI, how policies are made regarding AI, even how the public and members of the media understand and converse about AI issues. All of those things are colored by the stories we tell, or to put it in a much more eloquent way, I'm going to quote here from the introduction from Cave, Dihal, and Dylan. Quote, narratives of intelligent machines matter because they form the backdrop against which AI systems are being developed and against which these developments are interpreted and assessed, end quote. And further on, quote, the way AI is portrayed is therefore a social, ethical, and political issue. Through shaping the technical field, the acceptance of the resulting technology and its regulation, and through encoding normative sociopolitical assumptions, these portrayals have far-reaching implications, end quote. So there's good reason to examine and analyze and think about the stories we tell and the stories we consume about thinking machines. Today I'd like to talk about the second half of the book, which is aimed at the 20th and 21st centuries and is, by its very nature, very focused on contemporary science fiction. So buckle up <laughs> for a quick whirlwind tour of the second half of this fascinating anthology. The first essay in the modern and contemporary section is called Enslaved Minds, Artificial Intelligence, Slavery, and Revolt by Kanta Hall. And this essay looks at Carl Chopek's RUR from 1921, as well as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner from 1982, and Joe Walton's Thessaly Trilogy, which came out between 2014 and 2016, to think of how Robots and robot uprisings in fiction have been contextualized within the long history of slave revolts. And for that matter, what the AI as slave comparison tells us about personhood and the denial of personhood. The next chapter is Will Slocum's Machine Visions, Artificial Intelligence, Society, and Control. And in this essay, the author is looking at non-human or non-humanistic representations of artificial intelligence. In other words, not androids, but more like distributed systems. In works that think about the machine and what the machine's relationship is to control, autonomy, individuality, in works such as E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops from 1909. What, what a story. I teach that often. Paul W. Fairman's I, The Machine from 1968, Isaac Asimov's The Evitable Conflict from 1950, and the television series Person of Interest, which ran from 2011 to 2016. Slocum found some fascinating and really telling parallels here. In the next essay, A Push-Button Type of Thinking, 
automation, cybernetics, and AI in mid-century British literature, Graham Matthews spotlights the depiction of AI in British novels from Michael Frayn's The Tin Men in 1965, talking about automated computers, to the computer-controlled spy network in Lynn Dayton's Billion Dollar Brain in 1966, concluding with the onboard computer HAL in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 of Space Odyssey from 1968. Matthews sees, despite the varying tones of these works, a common thread of concern about the link between technology and creativity. Matthews notes, quote, Technological invention is shown to be hindered by a narrow adherence to logic, reason, and experience devoid of intuition and inspiration, end quote. There are a lot of insights here that are fascinating, and one that stuck with me was the reading of Hal from 2001 of Space Odyssey. Quote, Hal is popularly misconceived as either inexplicably psychotic and murderous, placing it in the tradition of later popular filmic representations such as The Terminator, or overly logical. The machine reasons that it will be better equipped to complete the mission without its human cargo. I argue that the cause of Hal's rebellion against the human crew members, Dave Bowman and Frank Poole, is not a simple malfunction or the development of a malign sensibility, but the inhuman application of heuristics, end quote. Heuristics here meaning generalized problem-solving skills. Hal is motivated to turn against the crew members who are human to escape, quote, a sensation that approximates shame. Shame provides a prime example of the unforeseen outcomes that may occur when the machine's competence is undermined through undeveloped interactions with the social environment, end quote. So much to think about there. The next essay, Artificial Intelligence and the Parent-Child Narrative by Beth Singler, looks at how we anthropomorphize AI in various stories, really reflecting cultural assumptions about both human children and the artificial intelligence as a child. And some of the works that are involved in this analysis include David Gerald's When Harley Was One, 1972, a novel, and the films Daryl from 1985 and AI, Artificial Intelligence from 2001, and Tron Legacy from 2010. Plus, there's some Star Trek in there, including the series Star Trek The Next Generation, which ran from 1987 to 1994, and the film Star Trek Insurrection from 1998. Next up is a standout for me, AI and Cyberpunk Networks by Anna McFarlane. I don't have time to do justice to this essay. I really just recommend reading it, especially if you're interested in the connections between early cyberpunk writers, such as William Gibson and Samuel R. Delaney, and post-cyberpunk authors like Cory Doctorow, and how these authors' works shape our understandings of the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. This is a deeply genre-heavy, genre-informed essay. I just want to give a quick quote here. Quote, It is important to understand that the goals of cyberpunk are not to imagine possibilities in a far-flung future. Cyberpunk is diagnostic of contemporary society. Ursula K. Le Guin elegantly argues that science fiction is not predictive, it is descriptive. William Gibson agrees with this sentiment when he says the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. Rather than aiming to predict the future, cyberpunk diagnoses the state of technology in the present. Arguing that we are already cyborgs, components in a system that we cannot completely understand. End quote. McFarlane makes a compelling case for considering cyberpunk as a cultural mode. 
instrumental in giving us a language and a set of imaginative metaphors for, quote, the black box that is the computer, the network, and its algorithmic logic, end quote. The next essay continues the cyberpunk theme, Stephen Cave's AI, Artificial Immortality, and Narratives of Mind Uploading shows the imaginative and often skeptical portrayals of using technology to free the human mind from the human body. Looks at a lot of science fiction texts, primarily from cyberpunk. So we're talking about works from William Gibson, Greg Egan, Pat Cadigan, Robert Sawyer, Rudy Rucker, and Cory Doctorow. A really interesting essay. There are some methodological innovations in some of these chapters, including in Artificial Intelligence and the Sovereign Governance Game by Sarah Dillon and Michael Dillon. There is an innovative mashup here of literary criticism and political theory to consider the conflict between sovereignty and governance. If you think of sovereignty as the warrant to rule and governance as operationalizing it, they think about artificial intelligence and games and governance, particularly in three works. Ian M. Banks's The Player of Games from 1988 and Accession in 1996, and Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice from 2013. While I'm talking about methodological innovation, I'll also mention the final essay in the anthology, The Fall and Rise of AI, Investigating AI Narratives with Computational Methods, by Gabriel Recchia. That work represents blending traditional literary analysis and computational techniques to identify key themes and trends and terms associated with AI. For example... In the English language portion of the Open Subtitles Corpus, a data set of over 100,000 film subtitles, ranging from the silent era to the present, looking at AI narratives and what patterns emerge, such as concerns about control in these stories. This leaves us with possible new avenues of thinking about and breaking down and analyzing AI narratives. So, the final essay I want to talk about is actually the next-to-last essay, and that is The Measure of a Woman, Fembots, Fact, and Fiction, by Kate Devlin and Olivia Belton. This essay looks at how both embodied and disembodied artificial intelligences are portrayed as gendered and sexualized in works like the film Ex Machina from 2014, its portrayal of Ava, the film Her from 2013 and its portrayal of Samantha, and Blade Runner 2049, a film from 2017 and its portrayal of Joy. They also connect these representations with narratives around sex robots, which are still in early development and how the fictional representations and the narratives about real-world robots relate to and are in conversation with each other. And the authors conclude, quote, The media representations demonstrate the anxiety that an artificially intelligent woman might not function as intended. The dream of perfect control, it seems, always belies a fear of a loss of control, end quote. And as I've already suggested, the idea of control comes up again in that final chapter as a word that repeatedly shows up in AI narratives, the suggestion that we are interested in what we can control and afraid of what we might not be able to control seems to be a recurring theme. And this, in a sense, takes me back to how I began the first part of this two-part extended book review. That is, with the observation that AI is everywhere right now. 
conversations about, concerns about, hopes for, fears concerning AI in the news, in popular culture, in our various institutions, in issues of new policies and new practices and ways of thinking about how we move forward. To quote the editors of the volume in the introduction, quote, It is likely that AI technologies will be highly consequential for the shape of society in the near and long term. If their efforts are to be positive rather than negative, it will be essential to reconcile the multiple discourses of different publics, policymakers, and technologists, and lay bare the assumptions and preconceptions on which they rest. We hope this book, in beginning to unpick the fascinating and complex history of AI narratives, will contribute to that goal. In AI Narratives, A History of Imaginative Thinking About Intelligent Machines, editors Stephen Cave, Conte Hall, and Sarah Dillon have started a conversation that I hope others will join, because it's an important one thinking about in a critical way, in a self-aware way, of the stories we've consumed about AI, the stories we're telling each other now about AI. So all of that is to say, if you're interested in science fiction, and if you're interested in narratives, and how the stories we consume and tell affect us, well, I highly recommend AI Narratives, A History of Imaginative Thinking About Intelligent Machines, Part 1, dealing with Western narratives from antiquity to modernity, and part two, focusing on the 20th and 21st century texts, including stories, novels, films, and television series. AI, a very timely topic indeed. I hope this has been of interest, and I hope you've enjoyed my whirlwind tour through this substantial and challenging and delicious anthology. And I hope that you will join me again soon when I turn to something completely different, when we get together to take another look back on genre history. Thank you. Amy, 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 what can I say? Huge thank you. Huge thank you, Amy. I just big, big hug and a big cuddle. Thank you so much indeed. So that is Starship Sofa's, what is it, 720 put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly, certainly have fantastic so until next time I'd just like to say support we Barry on please until next time just like to say good night from me thank you for listening I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. 
I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you Acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.